0: Welcome, one and all, to another episode of Left Turn Canada. I'm Andy, Christo is here, and today we are going to be discussing all things NDP. We're going to be talking about how to bring up unionization in your workplace and of course we're going to be talking about some really horrific, horrific Canadians that are ruining the lives of people like you and others. People that maybe most people aren't aware of but are doing some really horrid things. Now normally this prize has gone to almost every week Doug Ford, and he could have won again this week with what's happening in Ontario. But eventually, you know, we can't just say how bad things are here in Ontario, COVID and vaccination wise. Right, Uh, Crystal? Like It can't be every week that that's the show.
1: No, no, 100%. Look, look, Ford Ford's awful. But, you know, we got we got to be fair and we got (laughs) to spread the love or hate, as it were, and talk about some other people. Um, I'm sure Mr. Ford will be a multi time champion of the award going forward
0: yeah it's hard i can't think of different ways to put his face on a thumbnail we've been talking about him so often (laughs) when i'm putting this online so it's uh it's good to move on uh christo i know over the weekend you were focusing on the ndp convention you're writing some stories about it and uh, just before we get into it we're going to talk about that a little later overall how was that experience
1: it was a real mixed bag in a lot of ways um there was, there was a lot of technical difficulties and those technical difficulties sort of combined with a sense that the process was being sort of directed maybe by certain establishment figures Mm. that was maybe trying to stifle certain debates. Um, Whether that was true or not, I think it it, it probably at least partially was, but it was all magnified by the fact that uh, this process is very new and it it is easy to feel like it is untransparent. And that was in addition to very verifiable things like uh, a lack of accessibility for uh, disabled people, uh, for people who needed uh, translation in certain cases, who needed sign language, which was offered in the main plenary, but not in a lot of the uh, the um, outside spaces. And so the, you know, the, where the, the caucuses were meeting. And so the party had to basically give a refund to people who are part of the the Disability Committee for the NDP, the Disability Commission. Um, But on on the other hand, there was a lot of encouraging things. We saw, uh, as we're going to talk about later with some of the organizers, a historic resolution passed on Israel and Palestine. We saw the parties support a nationalization of telecoms, which uh, I know we talked about a couple of weeks ago, and we're happy to see. We saw the NDP support uh, a wealth tax as well as a eighty percent tax on all wealth above one million dollars. a a truly you know foundational change in 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 Canada's tax policy, if that was to become law, of course. Um, and so, in that way. There was a lot of good things done at this convention. So sort of in spite of the flaws, uh, I was I was at least somewhat encouraged by what we saw, at least on the policy front. Uh, for people who want my like detailed like day-by-day recap, um, you can read that at Canadian Dimension. I mean, one issue was as well, and this is at all conventions but magnified here, was that the nature of the systems uh, didn't leave enough time to debate policy. So even as I was encouraged... Uh, we didn't get to talk about a, a few really important things. For instance, there was a very, very highly ranked resolution on canceling student loan debt—not the piddly little twenty thousand after five years if you make sixty k or less as a household thing that we all, that you and I ripped uh, in, in a previous episode—but a, a call for the party to embrace full student loan debt cancellation, um, and it never made the floor. Because uh, we often were only able to do one or two or at the most three resolutions from any one of the subsections, which is frankly unacceptable but
0: and just so that uh, i understand because this is you know for i think for some of our listeners it will be hard to parse the bureaucracy of of something like this but th- these conventions as we've talked about before are pretty important when it comes to understanding the constituents wants and i essentially the mood and impetus of the party so I, at least that's how i understand it that as long as we're able to talk about these certain things we get to see what the party elites Actually believe in and what they're willing to, you know, put their support behind. The fact that some of these more radical and needed resolutions that we've talked about in the past didn't get their due in many cases, you know, is that just the case of the NDP elite not? Believing the same things that you and I believe, or is this maybe, you know, from your perspective, just a byproduct of the bureaucracy of this kind of parliamentary system with the this convention?
1: Both, okay, uh, both. Good. I would say <laughs> I, I I think that in a, in a sense that this convention magnified the fact that you never get to cover all the resolutions needed, mm-hmm. uh, and so this convention was the first one, at least at the federal NDP level, where the ranking system was member driven fully it used to be the case that everyone would submit resolutions and then a resolutions committee would rank them and there would be one narrow window at the start of each convention basically or at the mornings of each convention to move resolutions up or down the priority list Um, and you could do that through votes on the floor and things like that but that generally meant that the party Itself could determine what got debated. And so ultimately, usually anything transformative, anything controversial would be buried. This time, the members got to vote and basically use a point system where you could rank your top 10 priorities and your your first priority got more points, your 10th priority didn't get very many. And then the scores were added up for each uh, subsection because there were, you know, a section on economics, a session on social policy, whatever. uh, And then that determined the order. But the nature of this convention was that we only got to one or two or three resolutions per block. So even resolutions ranked second or third or fourth basically didn't always get a hearing. Uh, and so that was a, 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 a an issue. You see it sometimes where the party, for instance, would block certain amendments or want other amendments. Uh, but in some ways, I was encouraged because, for instance, when we talked about the 80% tax rate, Jagmeet Singh spoke to that resolution. So there are some cases where at these conventions, and not just the NDP, but the liberals and conservatives as well, where the membership will pass a resolution that the party has no intention of supporting. Remember like not to give uh, Aaron O'Toole too much credit, but he basically said, "I'm not going to listen to my members when they said climate change wasn't real." Like that, he basically said that.
0: Yeah, I don't know if you like, saw like, today. He had, he's introducing like the conservative environmental plan. I don't know if you saw that, but it, it yeah. smells very neoliberal in the way it's, it's being represented. And maybe yeah. we'll have
1: time to get into that yeah. that, that next week. Maybe mm-hmm. we we'll, But like, but the point is, like, he's not going to do nothing. It's not as if the member said that, and he's instantly going to become an open unab bashed climate skeptic right like that's that's not it's not politically feasible and maybe that's not even what he believes personally i don't know right like and like justin trudeau was already distancing away from the guaranteed annual income the basic income which the liberal party membership supported singh in this case was the first speaker on this issue and he spoke in favor of this policy that generally indicates that the party is actually supporting it uh, and 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 many prominent labor leaders spoke to it as well, including unbiased as I am, uh, my, my wife, uh, <laughs> who is a, a mover and shaker with the United Steelworkers. Hey now, uh, she she I, I don't know I, I I'm almost sure she doesn't listen to the podcast, so she won't <laughs> hear this shout out. But but the point is like that that's one of the factors. And in addition, a lot of people are skeptical about. The Palestine resolution, will the NDP actually support that? And on the one hand, I can certainly say that, you know, the NDP would not be uh, innocent, not be uh, uh, without uh, examples of taking a popular resolution from its membership and just ignoring it. But um, it was said on Twitter after the fact that the resolution had support from Jack Harris, who is the foreign affairs critic mm. for the NDP. So in at least some of these cases, there's are signs of encouragement. Yes, it's technically possible that all of the progressive things passed at a convention get diluted and or ignored. But when you have high profile people in the party speak to them, that maybe tells you at least uh, partially they are interested in the policy yeah and i'm just i'm very excited for the um the first convention maybe in person that we can have again if we ever get back to the normal times um where the 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 actual membership can rank resolutions because while we didn't get to a lot of them the the top 10 in each category i felt actually better reflected uh the what what i think NDPers want but also the debates we need to have as a party Mm -hmm. so now, did you
0: think those top... Well, just to interject a little bit, you are talking about the Palestine Resolution, yeah. and I didn't say that off the bat, but very soon we're actually going to be speaking to to the people that uh, drafted that and introduced it at the NDP convention uh, over the weekend. So it's going to be really exciting to get their perspective of why this is important and you know what it all means. So that's going to be coming up uh, very soon. I did see that uh, Jagmeet did speak on that with Rosemary Barton, who I just despise as a journalist here in Canada. But it, it was just a, every every time there's anything remotely progressive, it's it's sickening to hear how she downgrades it and denigrades it when she speaks. Yeah. But Jagmeet, yeah. I don't know but if you saw it, but he he did defend it in some pretty you know, absolute terms as much as they were trying to shift and say, you know, what do you, what does this mean about Israel? He was saying, no, this is about protecting the interest of Palestinians that are being oppressed, plain and simple. It's a moral right. And I don't know if that speaks to uh, what you're suggesting that there is some reflection of the party elite in these morals and ideals, but was there anything else that was really vital that went through in this convention that, you think will be reflected and could even possibly go the distance, uh, in terms of platform and policy for the NDP in the future.
1: Yeah. I mean, look, there was a lot encouraging. I mean, that, that interview actually was quite controversial because Mm -hmm. some people felt Singh was equivocating and I sort of think he could have been more direct where Rosemary said, do you support the resolution? And he could have said, you know, yes, I do uh you know rosemary but uh, i feel like I he did right. like i don't know yeah. maybe i'm not yeah seeing no it, but. <laughs> but, the, but the point is like i think it's a it's an important policy and and in the party have basically said look we want justice and peace for alice for for israelis and palestinians but in a sense there needs to be put pressure on israel because they are the 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 occupying force, for lack of a better term, and they are the more powerful force. They have more wealth. They have more military power uh, and they are the one occupying illegal settlements. So -hmm. it's incumbent upon them to kind of make the first step. And Canada, if the NDP got its way, would uh, put pressure on Israel by not selling them weapons that they will use to kill palestinians Mm -hmm. and uh not um trade with israel in the cases that those products and services come from illegal settlements Mm -hmm. it is not a blanket call to divest and boycott israel but simply the areas of of israel that are basically illegal because they're encroaching on palestine Mm -hmm. uh you know i think like there was a real discussion on on taxes there was the ability to get some action on telecoms I do think that there is potentially within this convention the roots of a really good platform. And what I said in my writing was um, the party needs to trust in its members and the party needs to trust in Canadians that they are actually, at the end of the day, pretty broadly progressive. Mm -hmm. They have to trust that, especially on a lot of the things we've talked about, telecoms, dental care, pharma care, these sorts of things, taxing the rich these issues are popular and so the NDP needs to be bold and say look we're not e- like we're giving you a bold platform but it's not even necessarily some sort of radical untested thing it's not some sort of radical fringe thing our ideas are consistently supported by people across the political spectrum especially our economic policies and so we're going to run with that and you know maybe maybe that's maybe that's the start of it although again it's possible that as we roll around to a platform Uh, Some of this gets de-emphasized. The NDP at a previous convention did sort of unanimously uh, vote to uh, make post-secondary education free, and and that never ended up in the platform. Not even close. So, Mm -hmm. who knows? But I am more optimistic then then maybe some other people have been.
0: Mm-hmm. Now yeah. we talked about this, it was I think it was the title of our last episode, that they need to be bold and kind of create the NDP and they have to create that rallying cry around something because we, mm-hmm. there's so many young people, there's so many people that have been disenfranchised by the current pandemic that's reflecting the pains of this capitalist system that is breaking down. You know we, we wanted them to have something strong. Is there anything here that you think will remain that rallying cry when we do come towards the next election for the NDP federally? Is there anything here that you believe earnestly will fulfill that role or are we still going to get, in your opinion, something that is changed and contorted and made a little more palatable for this base that you and I don't even necessarily think wants that? <laughs> you know, like, like you said, we shouldn't use terms radical because the things that, you know, we're suggesting and that, that are wanted by so many people really aren't radical. They, they seem to be in line with our, our basic ideals. Is there anything at this convention that rang true in that way?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think definitely like the like as noted the 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 talks about taxing the rich, uh, these sorts of policies, talking about uh, just transitions. Uh, These are things that can be rallied around in addition to other things that were necessarily introduced uh, at this convention. But, you know, PharmaCare and and those sorts of policies that I'm sure will be a part like they were part of the 2019 platform. They'll likely be part of a a, a hypothetical 2021-2022 platform as well. But no, I definitely think that some of the policies passed. Definitely have that role to play. It's hard to give a definitive answer because, again, the nature of the convention is we only got to cover about a dozen or so resolutions rather than maybe a couple dozen or more. We might get to cover at a traditional convention where things move a little bit quicker. Right. Uh, And so um, it's hard to give 100 percent. But I do think that there are the roots of a good platform in what's been discussed at this convention. Plus, what what was ran on in 2019, and on some of the issues you've seen movement, like there was a call in this uh, to uh, as uh, to to ensure uh, access to the internet. There was a call to do it through a crown corporation, which was a a, a demand that we were asking for a couple of weeks ago, and the party was not committing to that at this convention. They have, which mm-hmm. is good to see.
0: Yeah, still, I'm not. I want to hear that slogan, man. I want to hear something that was said here that is really gonna you know, rally people that that's easy to understand, you know, like I just I'm yeah. thinking about some of the more progressive and needed things that have been suggested by the NDP that once you examine them, like we said about um, trying to subsidize and uh, forgive uh, education debt, that it's actually much more complicated and neoliberal than anyone would actually want, you know, once more, is there anything that you could distill Because I'm a simple man. I need it to be simple like that into just like a banner, a, a motto that the NDP could rally on and that I could really easily use to convince people that have been so traditionally liberal to maybe, you know, look at something that is easy to understand that can help them and that they understand could help. Them. I know it's, it's, I think it's one of the most difficult things in politics is trying to make these unnecessarily complicated ideas or processes, not even ideas palatable. And I, the thing I love about leftism is that it it's quite an easy process. It's a moral clarity, right? So is, is there anything here that you think could be like that?
1: Well, I mean, I think I, I I'm asking again, I know, but yeah, yeah, no, no. Yeah. I mean, like, look, the, the, the taxing the rich, uh, and the liberals haven't been doing it for you. Yeah. Like the liberals have not been fighting for you, I will fight for you. That was Is Dougie's there a message. number?
0: Is there a number of taxing the like is there something that Yeah,
1: it's 80% above 1 million. It's, okay. it's a radical right. tax increase. Yeah. Uh, it, it, I I would like to see uh, more uh, I would like to see more on on wealth. They they kept the 1% wealth tax. I would like to see that higher frankly. Mm-hmm. I think it should be at least 3 or 4 or 5%. But like the reality is yeah, all wealth above 1 million dollars will be taxed at 80%. Uh
0: that's a big at one. At no, that that yeah. would be a big one.
1: Yeah. That's the you know, it, it's a real commitment to making the rich pay to make our country a better place, right? M- make and the rich Singh pay, f- I could see on banners yeah. right now, especially you know, with what like, we've gone through. Singh has said, like, look, on the one hand, you got a liberal party that's not there for you, they pretend to be, they're not there for you. On the other hand, you have an no tool conservative party that likes to pretend that they are the new working class party, but whenever they have a chance, they screw workers, basically. Mm-hmm. I think that's the line, and I think the roots are there right okay that's that's again it's yeah tax the rich to to rebuild canada and we have to build canada better than what we had before covid that's another line too Mm. it's not just about getting back to normal it's about building a new normal that is more just Uh, canada before covid was was better than canada during (laughs) covid but um but um but was still a deeply flawed yeah unjust society for, for 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 everyone almost everyone but for some people in particular
0: yeah so and I, so
1: now it's about uh, about doing better as a society and i think that's that's got to be the message
0: well i think that's a good one to tax the rich to rebuild canada to something better is hopeful it's not just assuming that we need to return to status quo it's not putting the blame on workers and uh, members of the underclass like it's very specific as to who your enemy is and I don't know if there are, like, uh, maybe this is a question that you could spread some light on. Like, I, I think now there is more antipathy towards the rich as so many in the last year have had to stretch and, and been in economic. Uh, servitude in many different ways over the last 12 months because of this pandemic I, I don't see a lot of people winning a lot of votes by trying to uh, appeal to that you know capitalist white protestant ethic anymore it seems like that is not going to be a moving factor that moved so many elections and you know the promise of that middle class home is Isn't going to win, at least in my perspective, like it would before. But trying to say, you know, the reason you're suffering is because of these people and we could change that to make your life better is something I've been wanting a political party to say for my entire lifetime here in Canada. And I really haven't felt like anyone has been trumpeting that very loudly. Now, this is hopeful. This is optimistic. They're not from what my understanding is that's not exactly what the NDP is saying at this moment.
1: No, no, not necessarily. But what they are sort of making clear to a certain degree, and Singh tapped into this much like Bernie Sanders did and and other progressives did, uh, is that we were a deeply unequal society and during this pandemic, the very richest have gotten disgustingly richer, right? So it's not just as if we have these existing inequalities, but that we have to realize that you know, we're not all in this together. And I think that's a correct message. Singh said that during his speech that we are not all in this together. He's directly challenging the, the Fordian and Trudeauian narrative that tries to build this fake solidarity that we're all in this together. Because even amongst regular people, some of us have not lost incomes and have not had to go work in the COVID mines, right? You and I, you know, get to work from home and, you know, YouTube was still YouTube, right? Yeah, we don't have to go to the
0: Cargill plant, which is now exactly. like just shutting down after having, at least in my local area, after having hundreds of cases of COVID. Like, there, exactly. there yeah. is nothing that is more defined the classes than this pandemic. And yeah. Finally, we have a politician that isn't trying to spout the pablum, right, of everyone's in yep. this together. Like, no, we're, 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 we're absolutely not. Some people are suffering more and it's not offensive or wrong to say that. And no. that's a big move for Canadian uh, optimism and sensibilities, I feel like, too, to be like, he, like, more yeah. radical.
1: Well, his, 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 his metaphor was, was quite effective, and I wonder if he'll go back to it, where Singh basically said, look, we're all in the COVID storm, which is to say it is affecting all of us. Even, even very wealthy people have been affected by COVID. Like, you can't really travel internationally all that easily, even if you have the money to do so. But the, the, he said, like, some of us are in luxury boats. Many of us are in, you know, ships that are stable but a lot of people are on rickety rafts or in no boat at all, just lost in the storm. And so, like, this is affecting all of us, but it is not affecting all of us equally. And some people, especially rich people, have have not only um, not really suffered, but in many ways have become wealthy beyond their wildest dreams, even relative to where they were back in March of 2020 versus now in April of 2021. And I think that that's an important message. So, look, I think, like, fundamentally... Singh is not going to go as far as you or I would go or as as many of the our listeners would go, but I definitely think that he's offering a a, a different suite of policies and a different rhetoric than we're gonna see from the other two major party leaders.
0: So it is optimistic there was some good things said and you know we can only see where this goes from here. Uh, We talked about earlier the Palestine Resolution that was introduced by Genevieve Navin and Amy Kishak. Very sorry if I'm pronouncing those names incorrectly. We reached out to them over the weekend and uh, we had the chance to speak to them and just to understand a little more about this resolution, why it's important to the NDP, why it should be important to you and I, and kind of what this means for Canadians, Moving
1: forward. so joining us is amy and genevieve guys thank you so much for coming on i just uh I'm, I'm so excited to talk about the historic resolution that you and others worked so hard to pass at the ndp convention on bringing justice and peace to Israel and Palestine. Can you guys, uh, can you guys tell us, you know, what was the motivation in particular behind this resolution? Like why this resolution in this way at this time?
2: Uh, th- thank you for that. And thanks for having us on. We're, we're very excited as well. I think um, a little bit still, probably in the, the shock of, of finally having achieved what we as um, both, uh, both having been uh, activists and involved with the NDP for a long time. Um, finally, to see this kind of come to fruition at convention was really exhilarating. Um, it's, it's certainly not the first time that uh, folks have worked to try to achieve um, this sort of uh, outcome of, of some form of sanctions that uh, being part of the NDP policy on Palestine and Israel. Um, both jean uh, and I were involved in the 2018 um, uh, resolution, uh, similarly focused on on trying to um, bring uh, in the language of of sanctions um, uh, to the NDP policy, uh, and it was uh, certainly met with some uh, resistance. But we've been working tirelessly in that in-between time to shore up support for, for some sort of measurable concrete action um, to really get at Canada's role in all of this as well. It, it's one thing to have a particular view um, of the conflict and to uh, have uh, uh, it, you know, a, a principled perspective on it. That's certainly one thing, but the other is to actually act on that uh, through some sort of uh, uh, concrete measures. We know uh, Canada's complicity in the uh, occupation um, is, is no small matter um, you know even from from the uh, sort of the the roots of the modeling of the kind of colonial project that that Israel's engaged in is, is part of it but but even in uh, as we know through uh, arms trade um, in particular we're seeing both um, the most recent the purchase of of uh, drones to surveil the Arctic coming at from uh, design from uh, warfare with uh, gods and civilians um, mm. and you know that that's just one example, yeah, right, of where wow, that complicity, yeah. right, that the interconnectedness is, and I think that's what we really wanted to get at, uh, because it, it's one thing to again say that this is some sort of removed sort of political uh, uh, subject uh, for only for those of interests or in the know, but uh, but the the reality is we we are um, engaging in, in making it uh, possible as Canadians. So we have uh, we have a debt that we owe as well to Palestinians uh, mm-hmm. to to right that wrong, really.
0: Well, yeah, I, th- I think that is the the main question that I want to ask because this is so important and essential. But as so many Canadians are are suffering and struggling right now, it's I think hard for some to understand why this is so important, why this is something that they should care about. So, just in your own words, also, so that I can get the great answers to tell people why this is so mm-hmm. important. You know, why is this measure something that? even now when people are suffering internally with this, this pandemic is still something that is important and that Canadians should care about.
3: Yeah, I mean, and and just on that issue is we we do have polling that shows there was a, a 2017 ECOS poll that confirmed that 78% of Canadians believed that in the context of, of Israel's ongoing human rights violation, that the Palestinian coi- uh, call for, for boycott is reasonable. So we're seeing even at kind of the, the widespread spread societal level that this is these are policies that are, are actually quite popular. And you know, we're 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 kind of to push back on some of the things that we've been hearing that you know this is potentially a controversial resolution because 80% 80, 80% vote in favor of, of this resolution is, is not something that's controversial. Um, mm-hmm. And it's really, you know, it's something that um, anyone, we, we kind of see a lot of this phenomenon of, of people who are progressive except for Palestine. And I know Angela Davis talks about this a lot, that people yeah. like pep, mm-hmm. basically. Um, and, and we're trying to say here that, that you know, if, if you do stand for, for rights and, and for human rights, rights and for justice and then Palestine absolutely has to be considered um, central to that right Palestine is is not only an issue that everyone here should care about but it's 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 a feminist issue it's an environmental issue um, it's an issue of, of um, queer liberation all of these things are not separate somehow um, from Palestine but very much intrinsic to to all of this so we're, we're we're seeing um, with this resolution, just how many people within the NDP have been really vying for a stance for years um, that reflects what the grassroots is, has been has been saying all along, right? So we can't have political parties um, that are unable to, to mention this as an important issue. And, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm hoping, you know, at the end, we'll be able to talk a little bit more about um, what you were saying before about, you know, how Trudeau, just today is is doubling down on calls against boycott, divestment, and sanctions. But we're seeing just more and more this appetite to make sure that Palestine is isn't actually central to this um, human rights um, agenda and, and and something that all activists should be caring about.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's so fascinating when you cited that polling um, because I I mean I had an inkling that especially this the the NDP resolution, which is frankly already a a, a fairly compromised based one. It's not calling for full sanctions, but for sanctions in particular, you know, uh, fairly restrained ways. Um, But the, the, that, that 80% support is in no way reflected in our media. And it's Mm -hmm. like that, 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 that just mirrors so many other progressive issues. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, we've talked, like I've written about it and Andy and I have talked about how, you know, a super majority of every Canadian from every political party supports a wealth tax, and yet it gets no coverage in the media, mm. the liberal and conservative and block parties. They, they, they all they all oppose it basically unanimously. And it's like I think it really does show that, like, um, we can get lost in these media narratives, which not only fail to reflect the, the will of Canadians, but often just frankly lie about that will. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
3: Right, and just to, to very briefly add, just when you're talking about media, is, is we see what happens to journalists um, in the United States, but also here in Canada when they do speak out on, on Palestine. And um, you know, this is not something that's just um, you know a, an issue only facing journalists. But I'm, I'm thinking in particular of of you know Mark Lamont Hill, who was fired from CNN after after yeah. talking about Israel Palestine. Yeah. So this is something that, um, yeah, it's it's again not not the only issue that speaks to the need for a progressive independent media but again this is all very much interconnected.
1: Yeah, no, 100% I de- I definitely think that's the case and I think that one of the things when we talk about cancel culture, which is such a right-wing narrative, there is nothing I've seen get people as consistently canceled even in academia, which is mm-hmm. supposedly a bastion of of free speech, it, it 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 certainly is not. Um any any kind of criticism of Israel often gets one far more canceled than than You know, anything J.K. Rowling claims to be canceled for. Right. But I I mean, I, I think that, you know, how do we so like what's the next step? Because as we all know, and this isn't particular to the NDP, but often resolutions at a convention don't make it into formal policy communications and the platform. And all these sorts of things. So, what's the next move for for you guys and for the and the the people that you worked with on this resolution to mm-hmm. make sure it it there there's accountability to what the NDP membership overwhelmingly supported.
2: That that's certainly the the next uh, big ask. Um, what we tried to do over um, the last uh, several months and sort of preparing to get the resolution to the floor was working across different um, sectors and groups. Um, for instance, we had a lot of support uh, of, of uh, the trade unions who were present at convention, their delegations. Um, we uh, had uh, tremendous support, of course, from from the different uh, Palestinian uh, organizations and advocacy groups, uh, groups like Independent Jewish Voices as well, uh, CPJME um, were all supporters and helped get the reach out. Um, I think that's something we'll want to continue. It doesn't end at convention, but getting the party to adopt that. But what's what we do want to note too is we did meet with caucus members. And we made a, a point of meeting with with anyone who wanted to meet on this issue. Um, it, it's it's tough to to. Um, have the kind of the engagement to, to educate folks and not everyone um is as familiar i think there are a lot of people who see this as a polarizing political issue so maybe haven't delved into it but we really did extend ourselves to do that um education work there certainly had some public support from caucus members who are very um, um vocal and public about their support nikki ashton Matthew mm-hmm. Green, louis um and uh, leah gazon were, were public supporters um but there have been others we, we met with jack harris as well and he's been mm-hmm. very Vocal since the resolution passed. Um, that as foreign affairs critic, this is uh, something he's passionate about. He was, mm-hmm. I think, eager to get to the mic. Although the, the yeah. time for the debate uh, ended a bit abruptly, but we had met with him and and uh, uh, in advance and and done that work right. So um, it is encouraging. And I think you know when we to the earlier question about the the rhetoric and the discourse around this issue. Um, you know the NDP traditionally has been a bit risk averse about speaking mm-hmm. out about uh the conflict beyond platitudes um and there is certainly a monopoly on on the discourse by pro-israel groups that often act and speak uh, broad you know wider than um uh than the size of their supporters uh, might might militate and they're Really, I think we've uh, I think this may be uh, Jen's uh, coined this term, you know, they're really anti-Palestinian lobby uh, groups or organizations. That's really what we should call them, call them out as such for for really that's what they're trading in. Um, they speak for a small portion of the electorate and speaking essentially at the expense of the human rights and international contrary to international law. That's really what they're lobbying and asking uh, political parties to support, but it, it's hard to name them as such. So I think we're gonna try to be a bit bolder um, and take a little bit of license now that we have this resolution. We see the very uh, real uh, 80% support, at least from NDP members. And we know again from the excess poll that it's wider than that generally, but to, to make Um, space for these conversations to be as explicit, to be bold about them and ask that, you know, NDP parliamentarians do the same, uh, civil society organizations do the same, uh, unions as well. You know, in in, uh, 2019, there was a delegation of uh, union leaders that went to Israel and Palestine for the Canadian Labour Congress. And and actually, some of these demands were from the recommendations of the CLC uh, after that visit. Um, some unions were explicit about their support for Palestine other and and that they went on this trip and what they learned and what they gathered others less so um, and it's one of those things that just sort of sits there quietly that there this visit happened and they met with you know uh, uh, labor organizations on both sides but not really um, uh, being loud and vocal about that um, and I think this is now the opportunity for anyone who's supportive in in behind closed doors or, or outside of the public purview to, to maybe uh, be a bit more audacious in how they speak on this issue and to be very clear if they have uh, the ear of the NDP or frankly any uh, political party or, or elected person to let them know what exactly they, they've borne witness to or what they've, mm-hmm. what they've come to learn and, and uh, make it you know, sort of an imperative uh, uh, that this, this type of policy be adopted.
0: Yeah. So let's give you that same opportunity. If there were not these impediments, if you had the opportunity to enact a policy that was entirely in the image that both of you believe would help, what would that look like?
3: Well That's a big question. (laughs) That's definitely a big question. Um,
0: For you personally, again, I'm not asking you to solve the conflict, (laughs) but yeah, yeah. I mean, I even
3: think the framing just of of it being a conflict is is I know like Palestinians push back on that framing because it's absolutely not in terms of Mm -hmm. just sheer power dynamics, Um, and I mean. I'm vocally in support of boycott divestment sanctions um, as as I'm sure are many people. Um, It is as a call from from Palestinian civil society around um, what needs to be done. So, I mean, I continue to to fight for for boycott divestment and sanctions um, kind of in in all areas. Uh, But um, I mean, we are aware of of why we we put the emphasis on um, sanctions and and arms embargo. for this particular, for this particular resolution. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that it, this resolution, again, like, I think I, I, as, as, as you are supportive of a broader program Mm -hmm. of, of, of sanctions, but I I definitely think this resolution really hones in on the most serious issue, which is that Canada and Israel basically cooperate uh, to use weapons of mass force uh, against innocent people, and that there are currently illegal settlements that are profiting off the theft of Palestinian land and mm-hmm. and i think that needs and diverting priorities. resources
2: as well i mean yes. you think about the large scale agriculture that happens in settlements um goes directly to the fact that many palestinians can't get don't have reliable or clean access to water yes. as another example like it is very immediate the impact the economic uh uh incentive really that has created for maintaining and ex- not just maintaining frankly expanding in the way that ca- Capitalism incentivizes a lot of, um, you know, harmful uh, things to, to fall upon, uh, uh, you know, anyone in a, not just in a colonial setting, but particularly in those types of settings. Um, it, it, there is this just wide um, uh, incentive financially for for Israel to maintain uh, the occupation in the way that it has. Um, I and and yeah, again, I think we were focused on things that were consistent as well to kind of go back to the progressive, except for Palestine, there, there is a very, um, a strong anti-war movement among the NDP. And I think in Canada, there is a, a strong support for those kinds of approaches. There is support for an end to, um, you know, uh, arms trading with Saudi Arabia, for example, because of human rights abuses, but we didn't see that sort of, uh, taken up, uh, to be Israel. And, and, you know, the, the uh, trade deal that I mentioned earlier around the uh, drone procurement with Elbit Systems, I think that was a $36 million, um, you know, contract uh, that, you know, we we have with them. So again, pointing out those um, sort of direct correlations where we've made it, politically, economically, like not just palatable, but viable for Israel to continue um, its current practice. In terms of the larger view of the conflict, yeah, I I agree uh, totally in support of of BDS um, principles broadly. Um, uh, I think another frame, too, to put on it is is, um, sort of Decolonization in general, in as many words, is kind of part of the the ultimate project. How can we um, sort of decolonize the whole view of it? I'm, I, I'm Palestinian. I was born in Ramallah. Uh, my family is still there. You'll get a lot of different opinions from folks who who are close to the issue in that way about the the region, the division of territory, the um, you know the coexistence. Um, I think ultimately, even even the division and the lines of the the West Bank and cementing these sort of um, uh, hard hard lines of of, you know even when we talk about Palestinian nationalism I don't want a Palestinian state either that looks like any other state like I want a real sort Mm of decolonization of the whole mentality um, and and structures and and way of policing people and not policing people and and really like a free-flowing kind of like actual peaceful co- coexistence like whatever that looks like it may sound a little bit u- like of a utopia but it's also what I imagine for um, Canada as well or what the, you know territory we call Canada to have um, you know a re- recognition for um, so- sovereignty for for folks who've, who've been denied that um, but also changing our view of what our relationship is to territory and land and resources and and all of that needs to change kind of fundamentally so it's a bit like of a daunting question because there's so many um facets uh to it because we had also a lot of people who there were even resolutions on the floor uh from convention they make it to the floor around recognizing uh uh palestine as a state and you know i mean again to to what end like and what what is it really going to achieve peace for people um it's not just cementing statehood there's there's so many other ways about how um people live and, and what the real constraints um, are on their ability to live free freely and, and uh, in a liberated way. So.
1: Yeah. So just maybe to, to kind of wrap up with a final question, because it goes into what we've kind of alluded to, which is that Justin Trudeau earlier today put out a statement essentially uh, pledging his support for Israel, uh, making a specific claim that BDS is uh, you know hateful uh, not only against Israel but against Jewish Canadians and suggesting that uh, Israel is being unfairly singled out by certain activists and finally saying that you know he'll continue to stand for the shared values of Israel and Canada which in this context include the systematic theft and uh, colonialization of land and of peoples uh, but I'm wondering what what mm-hmm. what do you what do you, you guys think of that statement i'm sure it's not surprising yeah. but you know what like what what does it mean to to hear that from the prime minister uh today
3: right i mean like again as, as, a, as a jewish person I, I don't need the prime minister telling me what is or is not anti-semitic um mm-hmm. i mean absolutely bds is is not is not anti-semitic and these are the conversations that should not really um be taking up as much uh framing as as they do and and exactly what you were saying about these shared values yes absolutely canada and israel are, are settler colonial states and that's they they got it they have to settler colonial states stick together on these <laughs> in these uh, these ends, and, mm-hmm. and um, even just to see the support for our resolution and um, people drawing parallels between, um, in, you know, Indigenous people fighting for, for land across so-called Canada um, versus Indigenous people, you know, fighting against depossession and settler colonialism and land and resource theft in, in Palestine. So, so these... These, this really shows just exactly what is at stake here and how far Canada needs to go into, into even just recognizing the most basic of human rights. And, and, and this whole kind of rhetoric of, of Israel being singled out, it, it's really quite the opposite, actually, in mm-hmm. terms of what Israel is able to kind of, quote unquote, get away with vis-a-vis other countries, like even mm-hmm. fighting, you know, like Amy mentioned before, different um. There there are movements for different sanctions um, against different countries and and, Israel is never on that list um, in the same way. So I think we have a very important political juncture here where the NDP has the opportunity to be more of a leader on this issue because like absolutely resoundingly, other political parties aren't, and um, just to kind of again plug that, you, we we see this work is not only happening within these kind of institutional political structures like political parties, but just kind of more part of this these broader movements um, for for Palestinian liberation and an ind- indigenous liberation here um, and in in so-called or what is currently called Canada as well.
1: Yeah, I mean, I look, I can't put it any better better than that. Um, this this was fantastic it was great to talk to you both about this uh when i saw when andy was was like we need to have somebody come on about this and then i saw your your press release and i'm like it's serendipitous we're gonna talk about this uh before you go uh let us know where we can find you on social media and the other projects you have let people know where they can find you
3: Sure I'll just plug we do have a website that um, Amy made and it's incredible and oh also, yes yes. with, yes. with oh. graphic design from um, our friend Kendra So we have a website um, let me just pull that up now it, it's Palestine. Palestine resolution 2021.CA and there's also an option there um, with different resources, um, some of the writing that we have written you know about about 2018, and then also ways to take action and, and get involved. Um, you can find me. I'm sometimes on Twitter. Um, not always. I, I'm also in law school, so that's that's always <laughs> hard, but uh, it's have <laughs> Joel and that's also um, my Instagram as well. And yeah, I'll, go ahead, Amy. Yeah,
2: um, you can find me on social at Amy Kishak. Um, and uh, we'll try to update the website soon with some of the media hits we've been getting and also try to create a network for people to keep working on this issue. Um, I think that is certainly one of the, the most important things that we don't want this to sort of die quietly in the policy book of the NDP, right? We want people to take this up and mm-hmm. uh, and to make uh, their voices heard and felt. Um, just on a concluding note, I think one of the things with the uh, prime minister's remarks that I find, uh, difficult is that there is almost, there's a tolerance for, um, anti-Palestinian or anti-Arab views. Um, I find in this country, it's, it's, um, it's one of those areas of, of racism specifically for, towards Palestinians and their struggle that seems to be tolerated. And I would love for that not to be the case. Um, it's, uh, one thing to want to, um, you know, show solidarity with with the Jewish community and speak out against anti-Semitism. It's a completely other project to engage in in a a limited and frankly propaganda view of history by referring to, uh, you know, Israeli Independence Day without speaking to the dispossession and to the real harm and to the modern day implications of what that's meant. Um, You know, in the same way that we mark Canada Day by talking about what happened when settlers uh came here and, and what we're all implicated in as settlers um those of us who are settlers here in Canada um it's okay to call these things out and to talk about that history openly it, it's something else to pretend that there isn't real uh, harm and hurt on the other side so um hopefully we can all start doing that openly and publicly and not get to, not lose our jobs or not lose uh, positions uh, mm-hmm. because of it that's the the well, Andy, you have anything
1: else to add?
0: No, I just want to thank you both. And I think, uh, again, this really does resonate as an issue that is a feminist issue, a human rights issue. It extends to all of our understandings of what it means to be progressive. And uh, right there, I think you really hit the nail on the head, Amy, is that why why is this racism allowed? Why is this something that you know? so often we try to push against these sort of ways of... Um, hurting others in our national discourse, but for some reason there there's an allowance for Palestinian racism and we heard it today from our leader. And Mm -hmm. I think this kind of work really pushes the needle forward. And I hope Christo and I can do as much as we can to change that narrative. And I think that's probably some of the more difficult things to do but it's great to have people like you guys that can help us do that and let someone like me understand and then I can push that forward more so again the website one more time it's going to be below in the description in case you missed it but just once more while we sign off please
3: yeah it's uh, a palestineresolution2021.ca
0: All right, well, thank you both so very much. Before we leave you this week, we wanted to touch on what we said at the opening. Worst Person Award in Canada. Doug Ford has clinched this many, many times. Christo, you ready? Let's give our nominations. Drumroll, please.
1: So I am going with Blaine Higgs. Now, many of you might not know who Blaine is, but uh, much like Doug Ford, he is a right-wing progressive conservative premier from uh, New Brunswick. Uh, and there's lots of reasons to bring up uh, Higgs. He's sort of flown under the radar because due to a variety of factors, all four of the maritime provinces have done far better on COVID than the six, uh, or excuse me, calling, calling uh Newfoundland, a maritime province, will get my maritime card revoked. All four Atlantic provinces have have benefit have benefited from lower population density, and they've all done reasonably well on COVID. But Blaine Higgs has been generally awful in his approach. Um, he's his claim to fame was before politics, basically being an executive for the Irving Company, which is. Uh, a massive conglomerate company, one of the biggest in Canada in raw terms, but specifically in how it dominates New Brunswick and some of the areas around New Brunswick, there's really no comparison. It dominates communications, it owns newspapers, it dominates pulp and paper, it dominates oil, it has gas stations everywhere. The Irving family is like the Mr. Burns family, Mm -hmm. but, but like real, right? And so it is fundamentally... Something that we can't escape, and the reason he's in the news today isn't for anything he's been doing over the over the the, the pandemic, but specifically talking about how um, indigenous reserves are getting super wealthy, and he wants to cut their tax benefits because indigenous people are getting wealthy. So uh, this is from Jacques Poitras. He's a a CBC journalist from New Brunswick. He said, asked on Info AM Fredericton, basically CBC's Fredericton channel, uh, Fredericton, the capital of New Brunswick, about a listener suggesting he raised taxes on the super wealthy such as the Irvings. Premier Higgs says the tax agreements with First Nations were creating super wealthy reserves to the detriment of non-indigenous New Brunswickers. Fuck him, man. Jesus. So, So
0: the Who believes this? Like, is there any again, we're always amazed to understand how insane humanity can be. But the idea that there's a scion of a wealthy corporation, a, a dynastic corporation that's trying to say that these reserves are hoarding wealth. And that's why you have it bad people that are living in the province that I am a premiership of is like beyond the pale. I don't understand it.
1: Yeah. I mean, look. The, the fact of the matter is that, you know, this guy easily won his seat. Uh, he was in Quispam Sis. He won his seat with about 70% of the vote. Uh, the nearest candidate was the Liberal, who finished with 14.6. So, uh, you know, he, he won a very smashing election in his own riding. And his government, he did form a majority government uh, with a 39% uh, 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 of the vote. Uh, and with the liberals furnishing with about 34 province wide, and so he has a he has a majority mandate. Uh, he won the Canada's first pandemic election, called sort of during the uh, the lull over the summer-ish time. During the fall, the election was in September. He um, won a majority government in that election. Uh, and again, before he was in politics, uh, before he was uh, you know t- in this sort of office he was a an executive for the uh, irving company he worked for 33 years for irving oil rising to a senior executive and overseeing oil transport across eastern canada and new england he retired from irving oil in 2010 and then became uh was elected uh to uh the legislature uh, was minister of finance under the previous uh conservative government and then became leader Um, you know, and then became leader of the opposition is now premier. And so this guy who was basically an Irving oil corporate stooge for a third of a century comes out and he's asked about taxing the rich. And then he says, actually, the problem is the quote unquote first nations, the quote unquote, you know, Indian reserves, right? And so, like, to put it in perspective, yesterday finance officials provided documents, this is Poitras again, showing that Awaska Maliseet First Nation received $18 million from a certain tax agreement they have with New Brunswick to share some of the gas taxes, whereas irving oil irving's arthur irving's net worth that's arthur irving as an individual not necessarily the corporation is 1.9 billion <laughs> right so this man is basically trying to protect the irving corporation which goes without any sort of just taxation throughout the province because they basically treat it like a like a goddamn company town and he's like actually uh, the, and you know it's the indigenous people's fault
3: right?
0: I, I just can't believe how i'm I always say this, this seems to be the the sentiment every week, how mask off these people are. Because normally to disenfranchise, you know, marginalized communities, it was done through this idea that, you know, there's a criminal element. There's some type of uh, racial divide that needs to be oppressed from the RCMP. But this is a man that is flat out just saying, without saying it directly, like not the exact words, I think that it's more important that we protect company lives than indigenous lives and here is how i want to disenfranchise them it's not true what he's saying as you said like it's just it's hilarious to even suggest well
1: it's disgusting though because here's the thing like it's tapping into existing stereotypes and one of the existing stereotypes despite the fact that we, and referring to European Canadians, settler Canadians, stole a literal goddamn hemisphere. Mm-hmm. Like we stole. We mm-hmm. <laughs> like we stole the hemisphere. Eradicated like
0: we, a history, destroyed yeah. a people, and the understandings yeah. wherein. Who, who,
1: despite us, survived. <laughs> yeah. And then these communities that, despite literal genocide, cultural genocide, physical genocide, like survived. And and some of these communities have found a way not to be rich, but to be not destitute. And then you have all these narratives from settler Canadians, largely based off misinformation and disinformation, that indigenous people are wealthy, that they get everything for free, that everything is taken from white Canadians to give to indigenous Canadians. And all of it's bullshit. Right. Because like like all of it's bullshit. But, like, you have this premier who, like, can just throw this little bit of racism into the radio to try and, like, cover for Irving, right? It's disgusting. I, I don't want to get too much more into it, but Blaine Higgs, go fuck yourself, you're worst person of the week.
0: There we go. Boom, boom, yeah. boom. And just to add to that, yeah. the most insidious thing to me looking in on this as, you know, the European background, settler background, is how he's really tapping into the capitalist disenfranchisement of his constituents. People are believing this for ignorant racist reasons, but also believing this because they are so beaten down by the capitalist system, and it is much easier for them to blame someone who has been identified as the historical enemy of the working-class Canadian Indigenous people unfairly when, ironically, the real person to blame is the man that has represented this corporate interest for nearly 40 years. The reason that most you know people that live in this area are feeling the effects of uh, poverty isn't due to the Indigenous. It's due to capitalism. And the fact that we don't have politicians saying that is gonna cause us all to die <laughs> like yeah. th- they will eventually lead i really do think to our complete extinction if there isn't some fundamental wrestling with capitalism as a destructive ideal and like, like uh, again, yeah, yeah go ahead no, just just finish it off finish off yeah no no like this there. like
1: look the 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 because look we we've talked about kenny we've talked about ford a lot we're probably going to talk about pallister and mo and they get a lot of attention but like Blaine Higgs is quietly, I think, right up there with like Ford and Kent. maybe not on COVID, but maybe he got lucky because of the 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 uh, the nature of of population density in New Brunswick. But like outside of a lot of these things, he's just as he's just as ghoulish as any other conservative. Uh, and it really does show that from top to bottom, he's an Irving corporate man.
0: Yeah. The pain is the point after yep. all. And uh, I want to, my pick is actually, it's kind of similar to that. So drum roll, please. Liberal MP, MP, Kevin Lamoura. Is that correct, Christo? I'm not good with names. Yeah, Lamoura.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think that's probably, yeah, yeah, that's probably pretty
0: good. So this is a name you probably don't know, but he is sponsoring a House of Commons petition that is calling Canada's criminal code to give police, the people who police us and in many ways dominate us, the power to arrest citizens who criticize them in an unfair and insensitive way. yes. That is correct, what I just said. The basis is the petition is demanding vocations, jobs, to be added to the list of identifiable groups against which hatred cannot be publicly directed in word or written form. So he is taking or hoping to take these very important laws that we have that protect marginalized communities from being abused for things they can't control and adopting it into a job in which every police officer makes a choice every day to be. And they also make a choice of what that job means. It is the fever dream of Every blue line, you know, uh, police li- blue lives matters yeah, morons. Yeah, back the blue
1: thin yeah. blue line. It's yeah, it's yeah, under yeah, the same that. ideal yeah.
0: that this is the same thing as being black in America is being you know having a a job as a police <laughs> officer to kill like that. You're yeah. the insanity of this, and I, I think it's. Do you unique. know who
1: the truly oppressed are? Yeah, the cops. Well, I, I when know I that- think of a powerless, marginalized <laughs> group of minorities. I think of the police. And
0: it's funny because I know yeah. there has been some similar musings in America about trying to include this for like billionaires and people of wealth. But it's it's been laughed out of every conversation. I love that this guy is a liberal MP as well and that it's mm-hmm. under that kind of like neoliberal, just sensible government ideas. But to me, this is some of the most insidious racist oh, yeah. destructive sort of thinking that undermines our hate speech laws and hate uh, hate crime laws of what they represent to begin with he's using progressivism to try to couch in overt racism and destruction and domination and I just I don't know it's so perfect I didn't think it was real like I had to read this a few times from Press Progress that did a really great article on this because I I just the fact that he's a liberal MP the fact that he's using the laws we already have the fact that he's trying this the language is so specific within the petition that vocations a job something that you choose to do is being protected in the same way that we cannot many Canadians and every every group of people cannot make choices of things that represent them you you can't change your skin color you can't change your ethnicity and it undermines and hurts anyone that has struggled and been oppressed for those Absolutely offensive basis to include something like a job. Now, it's very unlikely this will go the distance, but I I just I can't imagine how disconnected a human being can be from the the minds of Canadians to even suggest something like this. like
1: I mean, I think you'll probably get some people that like of that like respect the troop mentality. Mm-hmm. Like the cops are the real victims now. the The left has gone too far. Maybe this is a way that Lamura feels that uh, uh, that you know, I we can sort of take a a a chink out of the the conservatives' armor on. Um, on like being the pro cop pro law and order party by it's like, we love the cops and we love law and order too. And all these sorts of things, but you're right. It's like, it's, 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 it is insidious, right? Like, Mm -hmm. like I'll read you the, the blurb here from press progress. And then Luke LeBrun, who is basically like the, the, the editor of press progress who does fantastic work. Um, it says here, a liberal MP, Kevin Lamoureux, is sponsoring a petition calling for criticism of police to be classified as a form of hate speech. Anti-hate groups that say using hate speech laws to shield police from public criticism is extremely inappropriate. And he says here, we should not mince words. This is Luke Libra. Yeah. Liberal MP Kevin Lamoureux is sponsoring a petition that is advocating ideas that are clearly unconstitutional and authoritarian in nature. And basically what he's doing... Is he setting it up so that criticism of the police is going to be seen as hate speech in broadly defined terms? And he might counter by saying, oh, it's not fair-minded criticism, but, you know, just baseless attacks on the police. But who's going to determine that (laughs) and how is that going to be, um, you know, adjudicated on, say, a, a, a white upper class person criticizing the police and why can't we have baseless
0: attacks against like it's okay to hate people that do horrible things by choice like that. That's something we have to understand. We can't cloak ourselves in the language of progressivism to hide our more base prejudices. Like that's not a secret cheat code because you're using all of the woke languages and processes to, to say something that is insidious and hateful. Like it's okay to hate horrible people. And the, what's it's okay to hate this guy. And I hate him because of his job and what he's doing. I, you and I, Christo should always have the right to say that and to talk yeah. about how much we hate Kevin and the stuff that uh, Kevin is doing and yeah, just and look, go ahead.
1: Yeah. hundred percent. No, hundred percent. Look like not to, to drag it on, but like, look, these are cops. Uh, Even if you're not necessarily believer in ACAB and all cops are bad, all cops are bastards, whatever. Like the fact is that like criticism of the powerful is essential, whether especially when they have the power of the state, there should not be, you know, limits um, on on criticizing the police. Mm -hmm. I, I, I just that's not something I believe yeah like, look and if I, you have individual cases of like you know a- issuing a-, a threat at a particular police officer deal with that through existing legislation mm-hmm. but like if a-, a person should be fully free to say f the police police are scumbags every yeah. police officer is a racist those things should all be allowed to be said with full protection because who be are no we trying to protect
0: really like well because most of those yeah. things are true right yeah, most of those I mean? things are true and at the end of the day, I don't think anyone really believes this isn't going to be used by the police to stop peaceful assembly and uh, target um, minorities that are trying to fight for their own rights like it's just beyond the pale insanity and let's not even talk about it anymore let's talk about bigger and better things uh just to end off the show we do this every week to all of our patrons so if you haven't heard please go to patreon.com left turn canada be part of our little community we are growing and we are so appreciative of all the people that are lending their voice our discord is up and we got some great conversations going there i love Love talking all y'all about what it's like to have these, you know, daily struggles during COVID where, excuse me, you still have a job that you have to go to and put yourself at risk. So please become a part of that if you can. One of the benefits that we include is allowing you to ask a question on air. So this question here, just to end off the show make sure I have it in front of me, is from, one second, folks, I swear I was already, I swear I had it in front of me, is Gawain, I believe is his uh, username. He is asking, what are some ways to talk to your coworkers about their rights and acknowledging working class status to try to facilitate unionization. So I think it's a pretty, I I got the gist of it there, it's a pretty common refrain of uh, trying to share this idea of what's important to you to the people you work with who maybe don't believe the uh, the same sort of stuff. So, right off the bat, there's an organization that I've actually used before to help my wife in her workplace, and we contacted them the UFCW, UFCW.ca, Canadian Private Sectors Union. They really give you a point to point basis of how to make this happen. You can send them an email and they will immediately contact you with an organizer that can give you the knowledge and experience. Experience you need to get that workplace going. They'll they'll tell you if it's you know maybe a lost cause if they're trying to do this before they can help you have resources behind if your goal is unionization. If it's more broad speaking, just you know getting these ideas out there to get people's perspective because it is difficult. It's a it's a it's a heavy task to be the voice to, you know, bring change to your workplace. Like, that's tough. I I don't know if that's fair to put on the shoulders of one person just because you believe in this. Like, you still got to live. So, there's questions that I've always liked to ask when I worked in media a lot. And one of the fundamental things that I've always presented as kind of the core of this idea is, do you believe, when speaking to your coworkers, that your boss or your boss's boss that their time is worth 15 times yours. Do you think that anyone in your workplace works 15 times harder than you and should be rewarded at that rate when in reality they are and trying to get solidarity in that sort of way. And I think trying to make that connection to Uh, People you work with and understanding that you have more in common together than you ever will with the people who are in charge that seem to benefit much more directly from your work than you do and asking yourself if that is right, if that's something that you think should continue. And if they answer positively to that, my second idea is always, you know, do you believe that the work you do every day is yours, that you have a sense of ownership towards it? Do you feel you're rewarded when you do more or are you just punished when you don't do enough? That calls into question the whole idea of market capitalism in workplaces, that it actually isn't quite as capitalistic as you would believe. You're still scared that you're going to lose your job or that you can go home sick, but you aren't actually benefiting from working harder I've I found at least in many of the jobs that I had so I like to take all that and just try to get an ideology going and then ask yourself you know maybe if we instead of trying to advocate just for yourself for all of these very important ideals what if we were able to work together and get people that understood the language understood the bureaucracy and could represent you so you can just work and not worry about all these other things that's when I think a union comes into the picture. So those are my three fundamentals. You know, I think you should really check out that website. If unionization in particular is important to you, I, I kind of grabbed the reins on that. Christo, sorry about that. Anything else you, you want to add with them?
1: Yeah, just quickly, you know, the episodes running long and, yeah. and, and, and all those sorts of things, but um, no, I think th- those are all great points. I would add that, you know, we don't just tolerate that in a regular society that we quote unquote have good leaders. So we don't need democracy. And so even in a quote-unquote good workplace, every worker needs a union because it gives them, in a very limited sense, at least a vote on some of the broad conditions of their work. Uh, And that, you know, if you want to talk about what unites working people, you, you could talk about how, like, we all work for a wage, we all, you know, struggle to get by in many ways, and that we need to find some basis of unity. And if you happen to work in a workplace where your wages aren't the issue, because many people have jobs that maybe they pay decent wages, you have to talk about other things like fairness, transparency, work-life balance. These are all things that can unite people. And I think that those last points are especially important because if you're talking about class, a lot of white collar workers might not see themselves as working class and therefore not see themselves as the targets of unions. Uh, or as benefiting, uh, benefiting from unionization, but that's really crucial. And another factor is there's a certain element, uh, v- a vision of unions as being stultifying and overly bureaucratic, but that many unions are actually quite flexible and allow for differentiated pay rates and merit and all these sorts of things. And a union can be designed around not just uh, you know a traditional understanding of a factory union, but what working people need.
0: Big thanks again to our patrons, Tim, Jones, Shane, Daniel, Dave, Scott, Joshua, Benji, John, and Hamza. Please become a part of our community. This is Left Turn Canada.